0: Each of us, on an almost daily basis, faces difficult ethical questions. Here are some examples. What should one do if they find themselves standing at the gum and candy section of a city market grocery store, and the fruit-stripe gum is right there at pocket level, and no one is watching? This, of course, was before they had cameras everywhere in the stores. What would be the morally correct thing to do when someone desperately wants to buy the newest Richie Rich comic book, but they have already spent all of their money? They know, however, how to get some out of their frugal brother's piggy bank. What are the ethical steps one should take when they are attempting to transport suitcases full of medicine into a poor country to give away to those who are in great need of such help? And the customs officer quietly informs them that for only $100 in cash, the process can go smoothly. They know that otherwise it may be very costly, if not impossible, to import these items. And finally, what should one do when they are asked by their pastor to have sexual relations with a prostitute because they believe it will both preserve the foundation of the church and save the government of their country? I have personally faced most of those situations. But before any of you go out and start spreading rumors that Adventist ministers are encouraging prostitution, let me be very clear, it was not Pastor Jeff. (laughs) At the beginning of John chapter 8, we find ourselves sandwiched between two very contentious interactions with Christ and the Jewish leaders. These were potentially deadly interactions. In fact, while I don't want to spoil any of Pastor Jeff's future sermons, later on in Chapter 8, we find Christ's most caustic conversation on record. It includes the most pointed things he ever said about the religious leaders and one of the clearest things he ever said about his own identity. At the end of the conversation, they picked up rocks to stone him. It's in this setting that we find the short story that Patty just read for us. Thank you, Patty. Or do we find it? This portion of scripture is called the Pericope Adulterae by biblical scholars. That means the part taken out about the adulteress. For the first 1,000 years of the Christian Church, this story literally was taken out of most biblical manuscripts. While many modern translations now include it, it is usually set apart with brackets or parentheses or marked out with special delineation or a space, or there will be a comment in the scriptural line or in the footnotes stating, that this portion of John is not found in the earliest and presumably most trustworthy manuscripts. You can find such a comment on page 1062 in the Bibles in the pews in front of you. There is great disagreement among biblical scholars today as to whether or not this story should be in the Bible, and if so, where should it be in the biblical canon? The most common place for it to be found is here at the end of John chapter 7 and the beginning of John chapter 8. Some place it other places in John, and some even put it in Luke, since many think it sounds more like the writings of Luke than John. We don't have time today to go into all the points of discussion in that argument, but suffice it to say, That most conservative biblical scholars and most Bible translators believe that it has the ring of scriptural truth and that there is good historical evidence that the event did take place. Ellen White approaches the story as if it indeed was truly scriptural. In reviewing the lessons, the reasons on record as to why it was left out of the earlier manuscripts, I find the comments of two of the early church fathers Ambrose and Augustine to be very compelling. Both of them lived in the late fourth century. Ambrose hinted that there was dissatisfaction among the church fathers with the idea that Christ did not condemn adultery, which they felt might lead some women to feel free to sin. And Augustine, who is always very colorful and direct, stated that the mind of the unfaithful was terrified, fearing that an excuse for sinning would be given to women. So, in order that insane men might not be offended, enemies of the true faith removed from their manuscripts that thing which the Lord did concerning pardoning the adulteress. Instead of focusing on that debate, however, I would like to focus on the story itself and see what, if anything, we might learn from it. I personally believe that the primary purpose of Scripture is to teach us about God. So for today, let's sidestep the controversy and explore the story to see what we might learn about God from it. In the story, we have four main groups or individuals, which I have represented with these chairs on the stage. We have Jesus, the woman caught in the very act of adultery, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the crowd who had been listening to Jesus before the interruption took place. We also have good evidence regarding their roles in this story. In verse 6 of chapter 8, it tells us that the scribes and Pharisees were setting a trap for Jesus and were using the woman as bait. Knowing of His mercy and compassion, they believed He would go against the laws of Moses. They felt and hoped that this would infuriate the religious crowd against Jesus, To them, the woman was just a disposable means to that end. However, if Jesus agreed with Moses that the woman should be stoned, the religious leaders believed that the common people would be incensed and that the Romans would see Jesus as assuming authority which alone belonged to them. It was a beautifully strategic plan. We also learned something about the crowd from Ellen White. She states that some in the crowd took an active interest in the proceedings and even moved forward to read what Christ was writing in the dust, and that many of those who thus gathered around read the record of hidden sin inscribed against the accusers of the woman. What about the woman? Who might she have been? Several years ago, we had a young woman in our church who submitted a request that her membership be dropped. After a church and business session where a group of members with the best of intentions led to a vote that denied her wish, she asked to meet in person with the church to have the vote reconsidered. As she sat in front of the group, clutching a small teddy bear to her chest, in a trembling voice, she told her story. As a young girl, she had been sexually assaulted by a respected elder in the Boulder SDA church. After many years of difficulty trying on her own to deal with this, and with much subsequent counseling, she had been convinced that any future healing for her was dependent on a complete separation from the Adventist church, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. It still pains me to remember that meeting. But what can a young girl do has been assaulted and there is no counseling available. What if the man was a relative who was a well known leader in the local church and who still lives in her small village? What if she was constantly reminded of her sinfulness by the words and actions of her well meaning sister? who unconsciously insinuated that the way she acted and the way she dressed were somehow responsible for her assault. Well, one thing she might do is to leave home. Move to Galilee, where you can hide among the Gentiles and sinners who are known to inhabit that part of the country. Of course, you must find a way to make a living, but you have been groomed to be good at what you do, and the money rolls in. Each night, however, after they leave, you are consumed with guilt and overwhelmed by your demons. The evidence is a bit circuitous, but the first step of determining who this woman might be, I believe, has some compelling reasons. It is interesting to note that Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and Mary of Magdala, a small city in Galilee, might be the same woman. It's a bit convoluted, so I'll try to be clear, but you'll have to follow closely. In Luke, chapter 7, verse 39, we are told that the woman at Simon's feast— who anointed the feet and head of Jesus with expensive perfume, was known as a sinful woman. And John, in chapters 11 and 12, identifies that woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So here we have evidence that Mary of Bethany was known as a sinful woman which for all practical purposes means that she had a known history of being sexually promiscuous. In the year 591, Pope Gregory the Great famously concluded that Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene were the same woman. Mary of Bethany was known as a sinful woman, and Mary Magdalene had the reputation of being a prostitute. Although we don't take direction from popes, Ellen White concurs with Pope Gregory on the conclusion about who this woman was. The next step, however, in pinpointing this woman's identity is even more circumstantial, but I think it's based on rational evidence. In Luke 8.2, we are told that Mary Magdalene, whom we have tentatively identified as also being Mary of Bethany, had seven devils cast out of her by Jesus. Ellen White goes further and states not only that Mary Magdalene had seven devils cast out by Jesus, but so did the woman caught in adultery. Also, most of the gospel writers state that Mary Magdalene was at the foot of Christ's cross, and all of them say she was at his tomb. Ellen White says that the woman caught in adultery was at the foot of Christ's cross and was also at his tomb. Now, it's possible, but I believe improbable, that there were two different women who had seven devils cast out by Jesus and found themselves at the foot of his cross and at his tomb. If we can accept that it is improbable, then... Mary Magdalene and the woman caught in adultery were the same person. Using the transitive property of equality, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, I believe we have a strong argument that Mary of Bethany, Mary Magdalene, and the woman caught in adultery share such striking similarities that it is very likely that they were the same woman. I don't know of any great theological points to be taken from this speculation, but if true, it means that this humiliated woman, standing in front of Jesus and all the world, half-clad or possibly naked, was also the first person to announce to the world that Christ had risen from the tomb. Perhaps that's one reason why the disciples had such difficulty believing her. It also makes the story of the feast at Simon's house much more interesting, since Ellen White also states that Simon, the Pharisee, who had been cured of leprosy by Jesus, was the uncle of Martha and Mary, and thus also Martha and Lazarus, and thus also of Mary, and that he had been the one who had led Mary into a life of sin in the first place. You may remember from Luke's account of the story that when Simon saw how merciful Christ was to Mary, he convinced himself that Christ must not be a prophet or he would have known what a wicked woman Mary was. Christ then covertly confronted Simon with the evidence that he did indeed know both that Mary was a sinful woman and that he, Simon, was an even greater sinner and much more hypocritical. So to recap, in this story we have Jesus being confronted by the scribes and Pharisees We have Mary, who was caught in the very act of adultery, and we have the crowd of spectators watching at the confrontation and reading some of the hidden sins of the religious leaders written in the sand. Written there in the dust by the finger of God. I think it's an interesting side note to remember that the law of Moses, which they were going to accuse him of breaking, was also originally written by this same finger of God. But there is one important person who is not accounted for in this story, the man with whom she was caught committing adultery. If she was in the very act, so was he. According to the law of Moses, as we find it in Deuteronomy 22, if a man was found having sexual intimacy with another man's wife, they were both to be killed. If a man had sex with a woman who was betrothed or engaged, if it happened in town, they were both to be stoned, as it was assumed that she could have called out for help. If it happened in the countryside, only the man was to be killed. The girl was given the benefit of the doubt that she had attempted to yell for help, but that nobody had heard her. Finally, if a man raped a virgin who was not engaged, he was to pay the girl's father a fee and was obligated to marry the girl. He also could never divorce her. I think we can assume that this woman was not a virgin. So from all of the other scenarios in the Law of Moses, we see that the man was to be killed as well. He, however, is nowhere to be found in the story. It seems pretty obvious that part of this dastardly plot by the scribes and Pharisees to trap Jesus involved the man getting a dispensation, or an indulgence, or an exception, an exemption from the rules. I would assume they even paid for his encounter, since professional prostitutes always ask for their pay up front, or so I've been told. I guess the religious leaders believed that eventually they would get the money back anyway. I'm intrigued by who this man might have been. My good friend Gordy Gates has said that I tend to think differently than normal people, which I have taken as a compliment, although I'm not sure that was how it was intended. Be that as it may, I have spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out what kind of man would or could do something like this. And I've decided he would have fallen into one of four possible groups. The first group would have been made up of the Roman soldiers and Gentile rabble in town. These men would have had no moral hesitation in helping out with the plan and would not have fallen under the legal religious authority of the Jewish leaders. So they would have had little to lose and a sexual encounter and a possibly payment to gain from the deal. The second group would have been the Jewish rabble, probably including many of those who later cried, crucify him when Christ was on trial. Again, they would have had no moral reluctance and if given the right guarantees that they would not be included in any punishment, might have felt they had more to gain than to lose in this encounter. The third group would be the Pharisees themselves, This may seem like an unusual possibility, but when you want to make sure something is done right, do it yourself. Taking the attitude that the ends justified the means and with a guarantee that they also would not be punished, this might even have been something like a lottery with the winner sacrificing his honor for the team. But I think there was too great a risk that the people or their wives, might find out about this arrangement. I don't believe they could take that chance. The fourth group, which I've decided was the one from which the man was probably chosen, would be a group of zealous, religious Jewish patriots. It would have been someone who was scrupulously devoted to the law, who would never seriously entertain the thought of going to a prostitute, but who might be obsessed that his younger brother had wasted his fortune on such women. Someone who took lots of cold showers, but who fantasized about what it might be like to live the life of his brother. Someone not from the Pharisees or the religious leaders themselves, but who was trusted by them and who, for the right incentive, could be convinced that it is better that one man and woman should die for the people than that the nation should perish. Someone like the prodigal son's older brother, or like us. I've also wondered how the act itself went down. We cannot be certain, of course, but knowing a bit about men and human nature, I would conjecture that at least two things were included that are not found in the spiritual script. The first would have been a part of the man's contract, a signal to be given by him to ensure that the very act was not interrupted too soon by the Pharisees. The second is just part of human nature. I believe that after escaping The man would have circled back and attached himself to the outer margin of the crowd to watch how this plot was going to play out, a marginal man hiding in the crowd to see the fruits of his labors. The most important player in this plot, of course, is Christ himself. I have heard this story many times in sermons, as have you. And the lesson we were always supposed to get from it was that Christ ended His comments with the command to the woman, go and sin no more. I don't believe that was the lesson. Neither did the early church fathers who wanted this story taken out of the Bible. That is the least remarkable thing about this story. There is no controversy or debate over that. The truly astonishing thing about this story is that Christ had no condemnation for anyone. He did not come to condemn. He came to save. He called her dear woman and freely forgave her of something almost everyone considers to be one of the more sinful acts. He pointed out the gross hypocrisy of those despicable scribes and Pharisees, but did it in one of the least public ways possible. A few dusts of wind, the trample of the the crowd's feet, and the record would be gone forever. He did nothing to point out the duplicity of the marginal man. He took a definite stance against sin, But at the same time, he pointedly spoke to the hearts of those who needed the lessons while doing all he could to shield them from scorn and ridicule. He did the same thing at Simon's feast, covering for the judgmental treachery of Simon while speaking straight to Simon's heart. We have a tendency to divide the world into good and bad, righteous, and wicked, friends, and enemies. To Christ there was no such division. He came and attempted to reach everyone, for even His enemies are His children. When He was called on to denounce hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity, we are told that there were tears in His voice, as he uttered his scathing rebukes. It is the goodness of God that leads us and led Mary to repentance. I pull the covers around me to hide my humiliation, but they tear away my sheet and drag me naked through the streets. People stop and stare, most in shock and surprise, many with genuine sorrow. A few seem amused. There is an air of anticipation and dread. I cringe in fear. I have seen the reward of the harlot, the torn flesh, the broken skull, the unrecognizable human form under the scattered rocks? How will it feel? I weep in apprehension. With palpable disdain, I am thrown at the feet of a young teacher. The words of my accusers intensify my terror. Rabbi, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses has said we should stone her. What do you say? Caught in the very act, I cannot control my thoughts. My mind goes back to my joy-filled childhood in the Judean hills, the loving home, my broken dreams, the hypocritical religious leader who led me into this dreadful life. I am stricken with shame and the awful sense of impending doom. Thank God my parents are not alive to witness this, for I know, as do all good Jewish girls, that however hard the life of a harlot may be, it is not nearly so awful as their death. Lost in my own nightmarish world, I have missed what this man has been doing but his stinging words now wrench me back to consciousness. It is my death sentence. Let the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. I see movement out of the corner of my eye and I flinch in expectation. I hate this man. I wait, but I feel no pain. Dear woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? I look around. We too are alone in the midst of the crowd. No one, sir, I answer. No one condemns me. No one that is except myself. My guilt and shame overwhelm me in his presence. I don't condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. I look up into the kindest eyes I will ever see. I love this man.